Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today, Philip Schauer and I are joined by Professor Martin Siegert. Martin was our very first guest on the Sustainability in You podcast. We are delighted to welcome him back to talk to us about the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report recently released. He shares his reflections with us and delves further into some of the science. Martin is a glaciologist professor at Imperial College London and co-director of the Grantham Institute, Climate Change and Environment. So we have with us today on the Sustainability and New Podcast, Philip Shah. Philip is one of our new young ambassadors, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to ask Philip to introduce himself firstly. Philip, over to you. Thank you, Josephine. I'm very happy to be here and I'm very happy to be contributing to sustainability in you as a young ambassador. I'm very passionate about, you know, building a better planet and building better. Right. And Philip, t- just tell me what what got you connected to the climate change uh, agenda and, and what does it mean to you to have an opportunity to express your perspectives on a for you know within a forum? I think and you hear it more and more often, this is really something that we can't ignore. And you know, just making sure that we have a planet in the future and you know that the next generations and my kids and their kids have a healthy planet as well. And and the welfare that we are experiencing at the moment is, is really why I'm passionate about the topic. And as you will find out in the podcast with Martin now, the topic does come up. So what is the point of going through economic growth and welfare if down the line there is very little to enjoy that? And for me, the opportunity to support Josephine on the podcast and to talk to these amazing people is really to raise awareness and to drive awareness, because that is really the key for me to understand what is happening. How can we take that and implement it to actually then build this better future? Yeah, that's great. And it's really great for me, Philip, to see your passion coming through. So thank you for supporting the, the podcast and all that we're doing. So let's 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 go over to Martin now uh, and, and, and speak to him. So welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast. Um, so delighted to have Professor Martin Seeger with us today. Martin, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you back and have you with us. 
you know, I have to say you were our first guest on the Sustainability and You podcast series. And not only were you our first guest, but your podcast has continued to be extremely popular. I think it's great credit to your ability and eloquence in relaying the, the science uh, behind climate change, but also probably a reflection of the fact that our audience is extremely interested in the science and really wanting to understand more. So post the latest assessment report, number six, from the IPCC, we thought that we would um, have you back uh, as a guest because obviously it was a, a groundbreaking and uh, astonishing report in so many respects. And we really wanted to gather your perspectives post its release just to get your initial response uh, and some of your reflections. So perhaps we could start with that, Martin. Yes. In a very broad uh, way, the sixth assessment report has, has very little surprises in it because for, for those who are familiar with the climate problem, it's kind of obvious the direction that we're, that we're going in. And when you look at all the previous assessment reports, there is a ramping up of certainty about the, the climate issue, that it's happening, that we're responsible for it, and that it's increasing in severity and rate of change. And, and that's all been true for the last 20 plus plus years. And it's not a surprise. And so I mean, it would have been a major surprise if, if you said the reverse of it, of course. So there's no surprise there. But there were a few things that were new about this report that are worth mentioning. One was about attribution of climate change and extreme events uh, to human activity. And that's worth investigating a little further. And, and a very important piece on sea level change as well, where, whereas previous assessment reports had sort of ducked the issue really on, on how sea level is going to rise in the, in the future. We might explore that in, in a little while. This assessment report recognised the challenges in being able to predict and project sea level, but it didn't duck the, the big question and, and, and it sort of explained itself in, with, with uncertainty in mind, but, but nonetheless gave a very fair assessment of, of where we stand, where the science stands at the moment in our being able to, to calculate and, and, and project sea level this century, 20, 20 to 2100, but also... Yeah, I mean, it, it was very impactful, wasn't it? And there were a number of headlines around the attribution of climate warming to anthropogenic activity and the attribution of the 1% rise you know from you know 2017 above pre-industrial levels i'm not sure if that surprised people but i think the definitive or near definitive statement of the attribution was definitely picked up by the media uh, and there's clearly been commentary on that i wonder if you could say something a little bit more about the ability to attribute in such a clear way and 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 the science behind it yes, yes. and levels of uncertainty with that attribution uh, yeah first on the media bit it was really good to see that in the uk at least uh, it was pretty much front page news red letter day for 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 the world we need to take this seriously but it wasn't shared internationally actually there were many places that didn't have that headlines so that's interesting to know that it wasn't globally projected in, in in that way and the other thing to say is that you know on monday the newspapers were saying this is the most serious issue that our planet is facing. And sort of by Thursday, it had gone. Right? So this is the problem with, with, with the media that they want news stories all the time. And actually, the climate problem is, is a persistent thing that we need constant attention on. And we can't take our minds off it. We shouldn't take our minds off it. 
you know, mm. it might be convenient to do that, but that's not going to help. And so there's a real problem with the media that are always seeking, seeking new headlines, new angles. Actually, what we need here is, is, is consistent and persistent thought. And we need to keep it in people's minds all the time. And the media are there to help us, but it actually doesn't work very well from, from a media perspective. And stuff, of course, is quite new. And, and I'm delighted to tell you that in the Grantham Institute in Imperial College, we're, we're just about to appoint uh, Freddie Ricotto, who is the, really the lead author on all that stuff, you know, Time Magazine's top 100 influences in the last last year. You should get her on a future podcast, by the way. She's, she's amazing. Oh, love to. And, yeah. and that's fantastic news to have her as part of the yeah. Institute. Uh, and she's got an amazing story about the whole science behind attribution. And it was a few years ago where we recognised that people were talking about extreme events in terms of, you know, is this caused by human-induced climate change and and you had a ridiculous situation a few years ago when there was flooding in the somerset levels probably goes back maybe maybe 10 years ago actually now and people might remember the flooding in the somerset levels where they had the head of the met office being asked about is this is this due to climate change and human-induced climate change and they were saying oh well it's very difficult to determine that you know you can't possibly say that one storm uh, would or wouldn't have happened without without climate change and literally on the same day, David Cameron, who was the then prime minister, in his Wellington boots saying it definitely is about climate change. So we knew at that point there was a problem between what the science is able to do and actually what the people, the public needs to understand. And, and what Freddie has done with, with, with colleagues is to sort of provide a sort of scientific framework around the quantification of attribution. And they kind of do it in two ways. They, they look at the likelihood of something happening now versus without any climate change, without any human-induced climate change. And they look at the severity of something's happening now and how more, how more severe an event might, is now likely to be versus no, no climate change. So they do it in, the, in those two ways. They've been This year, unfortunately, has been a bit of a bonanza for, for people working in this area because there's been so short-term but horrific extreme events, flooding, massive heat waves, you know, it's just been desperate and, and not in one part of the world, pretty much everywhere around the world has been subject to this. And so what Freddie and her, and her team have been able to do is to very quickly apply the science into that and to demonstrate that actually these events are, are so much more likely, you know, seven, ten times more likely to be happening now than if there was no um, human-induced climate change around it. And that is it's, it's quite a profound change in our understanding of the situation that we've got. And they, they also look at two other things. The other, second thing they can do is look into the future and how bad things are also going to get under a range of different scenarios. And those scenarios are up to us as, as humans to decide you know, which one it is, a high emissions scenario or a low emissions one, but they can nonetheless sort of use the same science and project it into the future. And really interestingly, they can go back into the past as well and start looking at situations that have happened historically and apply the same logic. It, how likely was this to happen in the past? What was the severity of it in the past? And, and so for us in the UK, we might go back to the summer of 1976, you know, really, really hot summer. Was that influenced by anthropogenic climate change? And the answer is yes, it, yes, it was. And they can, they can explain the numbers behind this. They can even go far back as the Dust Bowl in the United States in, in the 30s. And actually, there is still an element was quite early in the, in the in anthropogenic climate change times, but there's still a signal there that it was influenced. And so, so this is a really wonderful new area of science that Freddie and her team have, have opened up. And, and especially 
in this public understanding of extreme events and the causes of it, but also critically the sort of political awareness of this as well. Because I, I feel that a lot of politicians are stuck with with old ways of thinking about this. And actually, if you start to, to explain in specific terms about a, a specific event, it, it becomes very difficult to argue against it. And so, so credit to her and the team for, for doing this. They've, they've really, really changed um, um, the, the way that sort of science approaches this, this problem. And is that a refinement of the methodologies adopted? The methodology to 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 be more certain around attribution to anthropogenic causes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they they that's exactly what happens. They look at. I mean, you can think about it in a gross way. You know, you've got a computer model that you're running, and it doesn't have any greenhouse gases in it, and you might sort of understand the world around you in, in with that situation as it was in 1850, and then you can put one in that, that does have these are these were experiments that were done calculated some time ago actually i mean there's no surprise in that science but being able to, to actually quantify what the attribution might might be that that's new and that's and that's what they've done that was what was missing mm-hmm. back in you know 2011 or whatever the, the somerset levels problem was there was there was no way of someone saying this event is five ten whatever it is times more likely to happen now than it would have done in 1850 but yeah. actually we can do that now and do you think then that will, as we look forward, give rise to more certainty in predicting the future? Because I know when we spoke before, you, you had made an observation that when these reports come out we're, and then we look back in time, the science is always slightly underestimated where we end up because there's a degree of prudency. Yes. Yes. In in the predictions, so do you think that will will the prudency will lessen and we'll get nearer to reality? Every I think time? there's a number of reasons for why why we might be quite conservative in our estimates of, of future future change, and and there's sort of there is a sort of general feeling that things are worse than have been predicted, right? and, and but you might understand why why that might be. You know, we've got very complicated models, but models are are, are just computer representations of some form of reality, right? And they and they have to make Sort of decisions and choices, um, and they have to parameterize certain mm. processes that might take years and years to try to calculate in an intricate way and, and add further uncertainties into mm. it. And so you have to take at some stage, you have to take a choice about which numbers to use in those parameters. And mm. you can use an outlandish, outrageous choice, right, which probably be criticized, or you can use a safe one. And, and of course, that's that's what people will, will normally do. But if you put safe choices in all the way, then the results that you get out will probably be conservative as a consequence. So there's kind of established understanding of that problem. Never more so, actually, than in the sea level uh, question, where where you know, we, as, as glaciologists, I'm a glaciologist, right, by the way, we have been quite critical of the way that we've been using computer models to project sea level, because the, the models, which are fantastic, and run by amazing people doing brilliant, brilliant work. But objectively, they're not really fit for purpose for what we're trying to do with them in terms of projecting level into the into the next um, century or so. Because for the reason I just said, you know, you, you have to take, you can't model everything in fine detail and you have to make some, some assumptions about various processes and you will choose a safe option rather than uh, anything else. And, and what that leaves us with it are, in many ways, quite cautious predictions about what sea level might, might do. Now, the Sith assessment report has understood that sort of frailty within the science and has put some, some very strong language in place that just to caveat what um, the projections might be. So the computer model projections might be somewhere between half a meter and a meter of, of sea level rise this 
this century, right? But they also say there is a lot of uncertainty in the modern. Yes. And, and there are processes that are going on in ice sheets that aren't really properly accounted for in these yeah. right now. Yeah. And, I think that uh, was very clearly stated, actually. Indeed. indeed. Yeah. Yes. And, and once you account for those things, you can't rule out that there might be two metres of sea level rise this century. Right. Mm. And, and things don't stop at 2100, by the way. They don't stop there. That's completely arbitrary. You know, we, we talk about 2100 because that was from the first assessment report in the late 1980s. And so, so looking forward into the century after, sea level continues to go up. And what the sixth assessment report has said is you can't rule out that in a worst case scenario of high emissions, this is there to be five meters of sea level rise by, by 2150. Now, that's, that's, it might, that might seem like an outrageous thing to suggest you know how could that possibly happen well actually for that to happen you would be looking at a large-scale melting of the greenland ice sheet and significant sectors of the west antarctic ice sheet and possibly part of the east antarctic ice sheet i've got to tell you those there was a day this summer that the entire surface of the greenland ice sheet was subject to melting that unprecedented that never happened before all of it was for a a day or two was melting and satellite measurements of the Western Tashi not only show that they're losing mass right now, but the rate of change has increased sixfold in 30 years. That is, they're losing six times more mass now than they were in 1990. And so things are going in the wrong direction there. And then the, and when you factor in which of these scenarios are we currently tracking on, the worst-case scenario, a best-case scenario, an intermediate we're much more closely tracking the worst case scenario than, than anything else in terms of the ice loss and, and, and sea level change. So my position on this is, is that I've always been hugely appreciative and I've got great admiration for, for people doing ice sheet models and modeling and, and at the same time uh, acknowledge that the, the results that come from those experiments might well be underestimates of what the future actually might, might be. Because ice sheets, we know from the historical record, Ice sheets can change really quickly. The last ice age, yeah. for example, was that 20,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago. That's all the ice age was. And it was forced by 100 parts per million carbon dioxide. That's, that, I mean, that's what did it. Sea level rose by 130 metres in that time, by 1.3 metres per century over 10,000 years. But actually, that was the gross average. There, there were times within those 10,000 years the sea level rose by three, four, five metres within a century. So we know that can happen. You force the climate, we know it can happen. Now, today is far more aggressive than it was mm. coming out of the ice age. You know, 100 parts per million over 10,000 years is what pulled us out, warmed the planet by five degrees, took us out of the ice age, essentially. We've put 100 parts per million of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in the last 50 years, 200 times more quickly than the Earth did it naturally to come out of the ice age. So it's no wonder that the ice sheets are responding Yes. and increasingly so to that type of course because we're not nudging the climate we're absolutely smashing it yeah and and i think you've explained both now and historically extremely well the the sort of interpen- interdependency between different forces that impact melt as well as climate warming and other climate impacts and the complexity of that and the uncertainties that still remain clearly are a challenge for the finance community because these 
climate models will underpin a lot of financial modelling, particularly risk assessment uh, for the insurance industry and, you know, informing science-based target initiatives, not, not least. The, the finance community, I think, is heavily dependent on science to get this right. How do you explain as a scientist some of these uncertainties so that they can be translated into financial speak and properly assessed. Some of these things we're talking about are nonlinear events, very difficult to predict. There seem to be indications of things that would move beyond what's currently predicted as well. You know, balancing caution versus trying to be certain as well is a real challenge. So there were some people in the finance sector that have understood this problem for some time. And I've been championing the, the, the need to get science ever interlocked with, with finance and investments, climate finance and investments. So it's kind of a separation. We're, we're, we're putting, in one way, climate finance and investment is needed for the zero carbon transition. That's what some talk about climate finance and investment that way. But there's a much grosser, larger issue, and that is all the investments that we, that we make have to be considered in light of what will climate change mean to those to those investments? How secure are, are those investments? So we have to sort of separate the, the thinking. I would say that we've been quite slow to, to make that those linkages, but there's a new centre that's just been developed, the UK Centre for Greening Finance and Investment, which is funded by the, the research councils that Imperial College is, is part of, but also University of Oxford, where it's led, and a few other universities as well. And, and that is tasked with doing just what you said, that is to mm. take the state-of-the-art knowledge and science um, about all manner of aspects. It might be coastal erosion, it could be river flooding, it could be heat waves, you know, all these sort of things which, which are going on and start applying it into thinking on finance and, and investments so that we don't have a situation where we start to invest in things that need to have a 50 plus year lifetime, right? And yet in a few years time, we'll be subject to all these problems that are possibly predictable now. And so it's just a sort of gathering together, a stitching together of, of knowledge where, it, where it's needed. And, and it wasn't happening naturally. And I think that's the, the thing to, to, to make the point of. It had to sort of be forced a little bit through the centre. But the whole point of the centre is to, is to make the connections, to bring the scientists together, finance people and investment people, so that there's no real excuse for, for not having this knowledge. And so that's what it's trying to do. So it just started, actually. Um, it was launched last Easter and it's got, got a five-year um, time ahead of it. Yeah, well, I think it's a, a fantastic initiative and, and, and great for our audience to hear that that's happening and get involved. Absolutely. Yeah, support the, well, support the centre and, and help build the knowledge. You know, the, the power of collaboration is key here, isn't it? Yes, that yes. science and finance come together. Hubs of for that type of exchange to take place. One of them will be in Leeds. Leeds University mm-hmm. is a partner. And the other will be in London, and the place for that will be in Royal which is another partner to us. So we're hoping to have events and meetings and things at the RI all all around this this issue in the years to come. So um, if people want to get involved, do get in, to get in touch with me. I'm pleased to talk to anybody, of course, and we can get them on the list of invitees to talk to um, with with all the sense of activities. Great. Well, thank you for that. Just to come back to the science a little, you know, Philip and I were talking earlier and we we wondered whether our audience or it had you know settled with our audience the impact of the cumulative effect uh, of carbon in the atmosphere. Because we often talk about going net zero 
now, don't we, Philip? But you know, when we think about the cumulative effect of carbon in the atmosphere and 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 how that impacts the rate at which we decarbonize, um, can can you say something uh, about that, Martin? Yeah, yeah. So for anyone who knows got, got that O level or GCSE maths, we're talking about the area under the curve, right? Not the final destination of the line, right? And that's the point. So. You're absolutely right. It's how much carbon dioxide gets put in. If we emit in a in a sort of carefree way until 2049, and then nothing in 2050, some might say we've delivered net zero. But of course, that's a huge amount of emissions that that have taken place, and we'll be bursting the 1.5 emit by some you know, very early. That's an possibly two as well, two degrees as well. So what we have to do is is the the whole premise of, of net zero was never really just about net zero. It was about a means to contain global warming to 1.5 degrees. And to do that, you need to have net zero with a certain trajectory of, of global emissions as, as well. There's different pathways. I mean, there's different ways to achieve it and there's different decisions to make. And often that, that variety of decisions often causes problems because you sort of delay take, taking action. If there's only one way to do this, It'd be nice and clear, possibly, what we had to do. But actually, there are decisions, and often political decisions, that need to be made. And often, it's going to be different in different nations as well. So for, for individual countries to work out what the, what the best route is. But ultimately, at some stage, everyone has to arrive at, along one of the lines, one of the lines of graphs that delivers net zero sometime around mid-century, but reduces emissions in the meantime, severely in the, in the meantime. The longer we leave taking serious action, the steeper... The, de- the decarbonisation has to be to, to keep the area under the curve the same as, as it would be. The easiest way to have done this, by the way, would have been 20 years ago. Right? We could have decarbonised at quite a modest rate for the next 50 plus years right? and kept temperatures within 1.5 degrees. And it would have been OK. You know, it would be quite reasonable to, to explain how we do that. But leaving it 20 years has caused us a real problem. It means the decarbonisation is steep in the lot. If we leave it another 10 years to 2030, decarbonisation takes us outside of our known ability to decarbonise at all. If we start it now, globally, we can decarbonise at about 4% a year. That, that's kind of what we have to do. And we know a country can do that. That's what Sweden did in the 1970s when they introduced solar power. So they, they did that. But if we, delete, if we delay it by just 10 years, the investment that's needed, by the way, increases by about half a percent of GDP, global GDP. But the rate of decarbonisation goes up to about 10%, which is way outside of our known ability. So, you know, the best time to have done this was 20 years ago, but we didn't do that. Right? The next best time is do it right now. If we leave it another 10 years, it will be very difficult to see how we can do it, actually. So this is why people talk about these, these next 10 years as being really critical to yeah. the future of our planet, because it's going to be really challenging to see how we can hit the 1.5 target unless we take proper action in this decade and i have to tell you we are now nine months into 2021 the second year of this progress on it so we probably need to step up which is why the glasgow summit coming up is i was just going to say and i also think there are some really powerful examples in the report between the impact of a two percent world and a 1.5 percent world and i was really pleased to see that because it really brought to life the difference and why we're focusing now yes, yes. on 1.5. Yes. Uh, 
And with that also, if you have a a spike above the 1.5 at certain points as we move to 2050, it was also clear that that could give rise to unforeseen impacts. Yes. Um, So there was a sort of uh, an appreciation based on our knowledge of what's happened in the past um, and records of past climate change, that, that when they start, when climate changes, it rarely changes in a graceful way. Often there are lots of rapid changes associated uh, with it, and then periods where, where it doesn't change, change so much. And so, so we know that that can happen. And this interlocking and interplay between different processes is, is actually quite difficult to, to understand right now, but we can appreciate it quite a bit more in the past because we have the records of, of, all, of all those changes. And, and I think this is what concerns a lot of scientists at the moment, that as we edge towards being two degrees warmer than we were in 1850, does that take us into a situation where we, we lose control of, of the climate processes and, and, and runaway effects start to happen? Feedback processes start to kick in and actually we, we can't dominate and control it anymore. You know, we are geoengineering our planet right now. We've done it. We're 1.2 degrees warmer than we were in 1850. When we talk about 1.5 degrees, by the way, we're talking about just another 0.3 degrees centigrade of warming because we're already 1.2 degrees warmer than, than we should be. And, and all those extreme events and things that we're seeing at an increasing rate are caused by us, by that 1.2 degrees of, of warming. So 1.5, that's the least we're going to get away with. We're going to experience more extreme weather. We're going to experience you know, more conditions that are, that are going to um, hurt livelihoods and, and people. And we're locked into that because of the actions that we have already taken. And there's really nothing we can do about that, unfortunately. It's that there's, a, there's a lag in the system and we're already responsible for the next few decades. But what we can certainly do is appreciate that problem and do our absolute best to not uh, heat the planet any further than that. We take it to two degrees centigrade. Well, in Paris in 2015, really this discussion about what does 1.5 versus 2 look like. Actually, 1.5 came about as a bit of a surprise in Paris. The language was always, let's keep it to below 2 degrees centigrade. And, and there was a coalition of low-lying Pacific nations that were saying, well, under 2 degrees of warming, with sea level rise, we won't have a nation anymore. And so it's an existential threat to, to those countries. And so why don't we have a greater ambition to 1.5 degrees? And people like John Kerry. He was the best climate envoy, was a real champion of that and did a fantastic job in galvanizing people's opinions around it um, and support. And that's and it's been on the table really ever since. But then immediately after Paris, people like me was, were, were asked, well, what does it mean? What does 1.5 degrees mean? Mm-hmm. And so I did some work with a lot of other colleagues about the Antarctic Peninsula and what 1.5 degrees means for the one for the Antarctic Peninsula versus either two degrees or further warming than that. You know, what changes are locked in and what problems are we avoiding by that 1.5 scenario? And we calculated, we did a sort of an expert um, review and expert opinions and things. And it turns out that the 1.5 is, is going to be really challenging for the Antarctic Peninsula. And, and there are, there's potential for ice shelf loss, for invasive species uh, on, on the land, for ocean acidification and marine biodiversity. All of those, those issues are there. But it's so much worse with two and, and, and two. I mean, it's obvious we should be doing our absolute best to contain warming to as low a level as, as we can, right? And, yeah. and, and many, many other parts of the world have the same type of thing. There are people and there are models caveated with all I've said so far about, about modelling that have regarded that somewhere around two degrees centigrade 
as being a threshold after which some of these runaway processes start, start to kick in. And the funny thing is that, of course, once one runaway process starts to happen because of the interplay between processes, then other things might, might transpire as well. And there was some, a study by some German colleagues uh, a couple of years ago that talked about global heating and global cooling systems on our planet. And at the moment, right now, we have a global cooling system. Half the emissions that we emit into the atmosphere are absorbed by the oceans. They do us an amazing favour by know not keeping it in, into the in the atmosphere by storing it somewhere but i can't continue uh, forever and at some point the ocean becomes less good at doing that job for us and then the emissions are just maintained in the atmosphere with accelerated warming and then once that happens you get a runaway effect because you have more greenhouse gases and so the earth goes from having a being a cooling system that's helping us greatly at the moment to being a heating system and of course if it does happen that way, there's only one thing that's responsible, and that's that's ourselves. So it's, so, it's <laughs> us. So we absolutely, absolutely, the two degrees seems seems a bit arbitrary, right? But actually, there's there's some good science that that says we need to keep away from two percent. And I'd really encourage people to read that aspect of the report because it really does bring to life the, the the difference between the two and I get with the new digital atlas that's been released on the IPCC website as well which visualizes the difference in the temperature rises as well I think it's a nice combination yes, to yes. be able to really sort of see that and um, not just read the word yeah yeah absolutely think of it this way you know, the, the crazy heat that we've seen in northwest United States and southwest Canada, the, the wildfires that have been raging around, around the planet, the, the awful downpours that we've seen in Germany and Belgium and, and many other places, and London and New York, mm-hmm. just scores of people dying in these cities and these places because of rainfall, right? And, and, and this, is, this is ridiculous. That happens under a 1.2 scenario. That, that's our scenario. That's, that's it now. Every one degrees of warming, a packet of air warmed by one degree centigrade contains seven percent more water. It doesn't have to, but it can contain seven percent more water. So a world which is warmed by one point two degrees can contain over over seven percent more water than it would have done in eighteen fifty. So the opportunity for for extreme rainfall is is much more um, obvious now than it would have been back in eighteen fifty. And if we warm the planet to two degrees centigrade. Well, it stands to reason, doesn't it? You don't really have to be a scientist to work out that it's going to get a lot than it is already. And so it's up to us. We, we, have, we have to first understand it's happening. And the, and the IPCC has done a tremendous job with that. You really can't, can't deny it. Understand that we've got to do something about it, but also that all the solutions that we need are available to us. I mean, they're all there, really. Uh, and so we just got to get on with it. I mean, I think, tell me this, Martin. I mean, the scientific community... I feel like it's shouting from the rooftops. It, it, it's really putting all the evidence in front of us to make very good and sound political and financial business, personal decisions. And yet, as we've you know, referenced, we're, we're slow to act. Well, I mean... Somehow the global community and science I has know. come together. There's a lot of inertia and, and there are a lot of uh, politicians who just haven't got this this problem and the severity of it at all. But actually, once they start to get a bit closer to the science and start to understand it, it all becomes off. And I fear they, they become rather embarrassed about some of the statements. And no more obvious than Boris Johnson. The statement that he made to the UN just, just recently was an extremely good speech. 
right? Yeah. Talk about the severity back in 2015, pretty much poured the score over the whole industry, not as bad as anyone is, is telling you. So he had a whole fast on, on this. And the reason yeah. he did that is he got closer to the problem. Right? Rather than sort of just pontificating about it without really understanding it at all, somehow still feeling able to, to, to have an opinion on it. Yeah. Got closer to the science, understood that a lot better, and the pennies dropped. So it's going to be very difficult for us to go around every single politician and do that do that job. It's going to have to be people like Boris Johnson and others that pick up this as the yeah. challenge and try to influence others, which, again, which is why the, uh, the, the summit. Well, I mean, I think um, COP26 is incredibly important for this for this very reason. Philip, I, I want to hand over to you, if I can, to ask your question. Absolutely. So, Martin, you talked a lot about, you know, that there will be activities that we need to do. Ideally, we start them yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, it, based on that, and we've gone through an era of tremendous growth and wealth. Do you see that happening in the future as well? Because for my generation, we obviously want to experience the same level of prosperity, the same level of growth. The growth needs to look differently, in my view, but what do you think about this? Do you think there is a level of growth we can achieve, or is it going to be an era of reassessment and and more holding back? Yeah, well, we can talk about the economics of, of growth and what that means for the planet in, in, in what we do it now, actually. So, <laughs> so, so the economics are a, what's the right word for it? They're a con, really. And, and, and for, for this reason, you can pollute greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as much as you like, as much as you like, right? You can just do it and no one's going to no care or, or tell you you can't do that. And so if you have a product which is a very carbon-intensive product, and you can sell it at a low cost, a low, low price to someone, you might think that's a competitive thing to do, and you're going to do that, and, and that's going to drive economic growth, right? But the true cost of this right, hasn't been paid by the polluter or the person who's purchased whatever it is, but, they, but they, someone is going to pay for that, and that's going to be in the future. That's because the planet's going to suffer, and people are going to suffer as a consequence. So it's utterly unfair the way that the economics work at the moment. I think a much, much better way to think about economic growth is in terms of planetary health. If you're doing something that is not conducive to maintaining and developing planetary health, then there needs to be a a proper price put on that. I'm not saying you should never do it, but there needs to be a proper price put on it, uh, a carbon price, if, if you like and a proper carbon price as well, equivalent to the amount of money needed to draw down an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide immediately, not by planting a tree somewhere in the future, but immediately taking it out of the atmosphere. And that might be quite expensive, but so be it, because that's the true cost of things. If we arrived at that, you can have as much economic growth as you like. You know, If the market was fair, if the finances were fair, there'd be absolutely no problem. And I tell you, it would drive behavior and it would drive competition as well to do this. So I've, I've, I've never been against economic growth, although we're consuming far too much and we're making too much rubbish that people don't really need, but that's a slightly other, other matter. But I've never, I've never had a problem with economic growth, but I have got a problem with economic growth if it, if it means that it's detrimental to planetary health. And, and, and the reason that won't exist is because the finances and the economics of it are just unfair. Hmm. How do you suggest you go about resolving that, or at least you know making a start? 
Yeah. Well, and, and do you think there are different measurements as well? You know, because I mean, GDP is probably the measurement for economic growth for a nation. Does that need to change as well? Yes, it may be. Maybe uh, the way that we live on our planet probably have to be reassessed. And what's and the point of having the Scopter review was? Yes. What's the point? Ha- what's the absolutely? What's the point in having global growth at you know, three to five percent or whatever if we don't have a planet? So, so planetary health, planetary health has to be our number one consideration, right? Obviously, it does. And I think there are a lot of vested interests here with, with some people making a hell of a lot of money who care about that more than the, the future. And that's despicable, of course, but I'm sure that that sort of thing happens. But there's no one lever to pull with this. There's lots of different things that, that we could do. There are people who can make choices. They can make low-carbon choices at the moment. Companies can start competing on, on carbon at the moment. There are certain things that governments can do. Not Governments can't do everything, but there are certain things governments can do, like procurement. You know, 300, in the United Kingdom, £300 billion a year spent on procuring things. And up until now, there's been little to no consideration of the carbon outcomes of the things that we procure. Well, that's ridiculous because it's public money. And, and if we're talking about planetary health, we all care about it. And it's my money and your money. I want the government to start putting regulations about emissions on the things that they procure. Because if they did that, then the companies that are applying for that money will start competing on carbon, as they do with all the other things around the procurement rules. So we should do that immediately. And other countries should do that as well. And it will start to, to, to drive behavior. When you're shop- If you're shopping online, for example, uh, and a lot of people do that, you will have, a, at the end of your shop, you'll have a whole list of things that you've just bought. And there'll be a price at the end as well. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we can calculate the carbon value of all those things that you've purchased and we can click a button which gives us the same types of things that you've just purchased but with different carbon values associated, i.e. if you've got like two types of pasta that you want to buy, one has a high carbon one, one is a low carbon one, but you don't really know about that. At the end of your shop, click a button and it suggests actually it's still pasta, it's what you want, it's just a lower carbon outcome. Now, it might be more expensive, it might be less expensive, but it would be a lower carbon outcome. That, that technology doesn't exist right now, but it could do. It could exist. And it would make a massive difference for people like you and I and many, many others that care about this problem, that want to select the low carbon outcome of the shop that they make. And if you did that, companies will start competing on carbon. They'll start to have a, an advantage, an economic advantage by reducing their carbon. At the moment, they don't have an economic advantage by reducing their carbon. That's what we have to try to, to, to do. Data data is king. Information is yes, king. Yes, absolutely. We'll make good choices. But I think you've set the scene probably for another podcast <laughs> on the systemic <laughs> challenge that we have and the interconnectedness of all things, government, science, regulation, consumer choice, business and personal responsibility but maybe on that note we'll set that scene perhaps for round three with you martin thank you martin thank you so much for your time Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back with us and again talking so eloquently uh, and passionately uh, about the climate change um, problems that we face today Uh, and thank you for all you're doing to find solutions as well bye for now bye